Welcome to the Las Doctoras podcast. I am Dr. Christina Rose, pronouns she, her. I am Dr. Renee Limas, pronouns she, her. In this podcast, we make space for important conversations about the social issues that affect our lives and the lives of other marginalized people. We talk with thinkers, scholars, mothers, writers, and other visionaries invested in taking a hard look at the oppressive social dynamics of the world and doing the work of dismantling all structures of power. We are grounded in a connection to ancestral wisdom, academic research and lived experience while we sit together and share our insights, ponder ideas about how to heal from the generational trauma of white and male supremacy. Join us on our journey, not toward perfection, but into reflection of the multidimensional and complex experience of humanity, attempting to survive and thrive within the oppressive power systems we live in, all while we sit at our kitchen tables, sipping on some tequila, hoping to change the world. Bienvenidas! Hello, welcome to Las Doctoras Podcast. This is episode 22. We are so grateful for everyone who's been listening, who's continuing to listen. We've definitely been in a really interesting headspace lately. Um, We are currently taking a little bit of time off, quote unquote, (laughs) for the summer. Um, But we wanted to bring you this episode um, that we recorded quite a few weeks ago, um, maybe even close to over a month ago. Um, We've been just dealing with all things happening, you know, coronavirus, uh, the revolution, uh, changes in our work schedule, all kinds of different things as I'm sure you all can imagine Um, but we wanted to um, round out this uh, the this body politics series with this episode that we um, recorded with Monica Hernandez so um, you'll see uh, in the in the interview she will introduce herself and and her work and whatnot Um, But I did want to quickly, before we get into that, just shout out one of our newest patrons, Priscilla Rojas. Um, Thank you for being a patron. And um, for anyone who's interested um, in joining our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash las doctoras. And we have different tiers. And beginning at the $5 tier, you'll get a shout out from us. Um, and as well as some of our uh, moon phase stickers um, that we have available. And we're actually going to start putting some more things on Patreon. Um, If you follow us and know about our book club, um, a few things. First, we, we just finished three months of our book club. So we completed three books. And um, at the end of each month, we were able to have um, a special guest, different special guests join us um, for our book club in each month, uh, including, <laughs> I'll, I'll, so I'll tell you, um, when we read A Woman Who Glows in the Dark, we had special guest Silvia Poreo, who is, um, we would sort of call her a curandera. And so she joined us um, for that book club month that was in April. In May, when we read um, uh, The Body is Not not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor, Sonia Renee Taylor herself actually joined us um, in our last meeting for that um, for that uh, book. And then um, most recently we read um, You Were Born for This by Chani Nicholas. It's a book about astrology. And so Esoteric Essa, for anyone who's familiar with her work um, on Instagram and on Patreon, she was able to join us in our last um, uh, book club meeting for that book. So, uh, and we were able to record those meetings, but those recordings are only going to be available to those who were in the book club with us, or if you join our Patreon beginning at the $10 tier. So if you pay, um, no, I take that back. (laughs) (laughs) beginning at the $5 tier. So if you pay $5 a month to join our patron, our Patreon, you will get access to those amazing interviews we did with these amazing, amazing women. Um, so, so yeah, so thanks for, for listening. Hopefully you can be, um, join our Patreon, continue to join our, 
uh, or to follow our work on Instagram, we are going to be announcing our newest book club selection very soon to those who have joined our book club mailing list. So if you want to do that, you can go to the link in, in our profile on Instagram to join our book club and you'll get um, you'll get our next book club selection. And we'll also be um, announcing that on Instagram as we get closer. Um, that's going to be for the month of August, because like I said, we're taking July off. Um, but we've already made our decision for August and I think September. So we're really excited to continue this book club. So again, thanks for being here and enjoy this interview. <laughs> Welcome, Monica. <laughs> so, Hello, um, <laughs> um, so we're here today um, with Monica Hernandez, and um, I'm going to go ahead and let her introduce herself, and then and then we'll go from there. So, Monica, tell us who you are, what you do, what's been happening, how are you dealing with all of this. <laughs> Oh, and tell us a little bit about your ancestral background as well. Okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Monica Hernandez. I am uh, surviving this pandemic in the borderlands region of San Diego, Tijuana, which has been quite an experience uh, in this era of super uh, anti-Asian sentiments, um, Mm. coupled that with closing down the border, with police brutality, with border patrol brutality. So it's, it's been... Just like a, a really rough couple of months in navigating that. Um, I am currently a PhD student at Arizona State University, and that in itself has been quite an, ex- an experience. Uh, I'm in Women in Japanese Studies, which has, you know, I, I'm trained in Chicano Chicana Studies, in history, um, and so going into Women in Gender Studies, it has been quite a leap just to mm-hmm. see how the departments have changed from what I've learned in the books and how the departments have not changed from what I've learned mm. in the books. It's yes. still very white. It's still very elite. Yes. And I'm not one to shy away from saying that. Um, uh-huh. So a lot of, of it for me has been navigating what is it like being a fat brown body in this space that is seemingly progressive, but um, I'm going to emphasize the word seemingly in that statement. <laughs> um, I'm also an adjunct. So I never stopped working. I've been teaching Chicano Chicana Studies classes online um, since I started the program, which was three years ago. But I've been adjuncting since 2013. So it's been a while. The adjunct hustle is real. It's super real. And Mm -hmm. I think the lived realities of so many working class uh, students, you know, work just doesn't stop. It can't stop, right? A lot of us are helping families. A lot of us have families of our own. Okay. So yeah, I've been teaching okay. community college classes since 2013, and um, I am a third generation Chicana, self-identified Chicana. My grandparents, uh, one was from Ciudad Juarez, El Paso, that border region. My grandpa okay. was from here in San Diego. And I actually just found out that on my father's side, my parents are divorced, but on my father's side, his father was also from um, a place in Texas. So it's like on both sides. I have ancestral roots here, but um, I'm also part Chinese, which is, has been something interesting to discover later on in my life. It was something that was very rooted in silencio. My grandma never wanted to talk about the fact that her father was full-blooded Chinese. Uh, but I think unearthing that and knowing the history of like Chinese exclusion and Mm -hmm. know how her family came to be, it's been a, a journey for me. I love that. Oh my goodness. I'm, my, my father's family is Filipino. So I really, I don't know. I just, and they, I don't know. They try to hush that up. It seems like a lot. So yeah. resonate. I love you speaking to them. Just multiple modalities there. And I honestly, I think your department needs you. They need you to say, you know, to question what they're doing and um, you're a gift to them for sure. Yeah. It's always so interesting when you think about like you said, seemingly progressive spaces, like mm-hmm. a women gender yeah. studies program. And you're like, wait, what? Like, yeah. I thought this is, this would be the space that I could be myself. Right. Anyway. Yep. Um, not that I have experience with that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and you're like, teaching at the, the three colleges now, right? You were saying ASU and Correct. And then yeah. San Diego City College, and I just finished teaching a class at San Diego State University. 
So that's in the Chicano Chicano Studies Department? Yes. Cool. Um, So I wanted to tell just quickly how we met, um, because even Christina was asking me, and I was thinking about this. Um, I don't know if you remember, (laughs) but um, we went to an open house at the UCSD Ethnic Studies PhD program. Yep, yep, and yep. I think we we kind of uh, like bonded over the fact that we were both coming from like Chicano Chicano studies programs, and that we both went to all girl Catholic schools. So you went to OLP yes. and I went to Saint Joseph. Um, which, by the way, is so funny. So my brother actually he's a professor at San Diego State. He's in the public health department, um, and so and his daughter goes to a Catholic school out there, and so she's like prepping to go out to OLP, which by the way is a beautiful campus. Um, anyway, and then we met up like years later at a conference when I was in, um, when I was in my PhD program. Um, and then I think we were on a panel for the conference in San Antonio, but you ended up having a, an interview, right? For a tenure track um, position. Um, yes. So yeah, so we've been just kind of keeping in touch, I think like, online and stuff but i i do remember you presenting at at that conference that when i was at uc riverside and i think at the time i mean gosh this had to have been what year we in close to 10 years ago right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. at the time there was no body positive movement the way it is today would you agree like and so I felt like you're like the, the kind of stuff that you were doing, I was like, whoa, like, where is this, right? There's, it's not, um, I don't know, it just wasn't as prevalent as it, I think is kind of, I, I mean, body positive movement in terms of like social media and stuff is one thing, but within, even within like academia is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, so the stuff that Christine and I've been talking about in this body politics series is, is, you know, we recognize that body is, um, is a very, it's a topic that we live with every day because we live and walk in our bodies, mm-hmm. but it's the one that we don't want to talk about, right? Yeah. We can talk about so many yep. other things, but we don't want to talk about our bodies. We don't want to talk about how we feel about our bodies. Um, it's the most triggering topic. I know for my students, it's always the most triggering topic. Um, and more taboo I, than like money, more taboo than even like menstruation outside of your body. Like it's like if you talk mm-hmm. about it, like your body, yes. Mm-hmm. And so and so, I think Christine and I were like, even her, her and I were scared. We were like, oh god, like we have to come face to face with our own feelings about ourselves if we're going to like put this conversation out to the world. And um, so we've been kind of on that journey. So we did an episode where her and I just kind of talked about where we're at and what brought us you know our own like body journey it brought up a lot of stuff from like uh um junior high or like early high school like you know prepubescent to like you know and um attention and power um yeah it's good and then now um post pregnancy you know with children what it feels like it was it was a great conversation yeah and, and we and then we um and then we started a book club and right now we're reading the body is not an apology by sonia renee taylor, renee taylor. um <laughs> and that's obviously you know I, when i was when i read it i'm like fuck, she's speaking my language <laughs> one she's speaking my language right um yes. and and so you know that's been uh, again another kind of like step in this journey of like just having this conversation, like really just talking about like what is our relationship yeah. to our bodies and how is that constructed by, you know, we all can name all these different systems, but. Um, and doing that in the book club and in the community too, I feel like you can feel the ripples. Like I'll post, we'll post pictures and then suddenly people, other people, like you're just like, wow. And you can feel this like vulnerable energy, you know, it just feels like. Yeah. And it's, and again, it's, it's interesting to see how, we can talk so much about things and yet, you know, we live in our bodies and that's, that's the last thing we want to talk about, you know? Um, yep. So anyway, <laughs> I just wanted <laughs> to hear, I think, I like it. Um, 
Yeah, like, like just, I want to hear what you have to say, you know, what is your, if you want to tell us about your work, your research, your journey, like, yeah, I think maybe that's a good place to start is what had you okay. coming to, maybe what had you coming to academia in general, and then specifically the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's see, where do I start? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> You know, when I think about higher ed, I think about how in senior year of high school, I had a college counselor, speaking of OLP, um, who told me that I wasn't smart enough to go to San Diego State, which at that time, San Diego State was a quote unquote safety school. Mm. And so I was smart enough. Maybe I wasn't a 4.0 student, but I did have a GPA to get me in. But, um, you know, it was one of those things where if you just weren't a stellar girl in attendance at this school, no one paid attention to you, to your scholarship mm. list, to your college list, nothing like that. So I ended up at community college and I, to this day, always say I'm a proud community college transfer student. I believe in that system. Mm -hmm. I think community colleges are the gateway for so many of us into higher ed and through higher ed or even just classes to help you make more money at work or certifications to do some type of service you're passionate about, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Community college, are, 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 they're a gateway for that. And so that's how I ended up in community college. And I, I think it's important for me to share that part because so many people assume that private schools are better equipped and in certain ways, maybe they are. Um, but there's a lot of tracking that goes on in, in, in high schools. There's a lot of racism that occurs in high schools. There's a lot of elitism and, and differences in class between students. And so because a lot of these places are not publicly funded, no one really pays attention to what's happening in these places. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to emphasize that. But from there, I ended up transferring to UCLA, which surprised the heck out of me. I never thought I would get in there and navigating the UC system was tremendously hard for me, not intellectually, but feeling like I stuck out as a fat brown body, not just a brown body. I mean, UCLA is in the heart of Hollywood, Brentwood, Westwood, West LA, looks matter. Um, and so being that fat woman walking around campus, I felt very self-conscious and pushed to constantly be on a diet to monitor what I ate, to work out, to try to fit in. And interestingly, it was there that I experienced for the first time verbally, I think, it, like in my face, a man's rejection of me because of my body. And so it was that rejection that triggered, you know, like this Guatlicua uh, state to borrow from Manzaldúa, this journey inward of why does this one man's words matter so much? Why am I letting him and his rejection of me chip away at my value, my intellect, uh, my heart, my kindness? And it was that summer that I was first introduced to fat positivity through books, through readings that I encountered. Um, so this was summer, let's see here, shoot, what year was this? <laughs> 2010, <laughs> 2010, and I had just applied for my master's degree in Chicano Chicana Studies. I got in and right away I knew you know, I'm reading stuff. This was in that summer. I'm, I had no idea what my thesis would be on, but I, I was reading fat positivity books and I saw nothing about Latinas. Mm. I had seen real women have curves. I had read the, the play, but that I saw women writing about Chicanas, Latinas, any type of racial or ethnic group. Uh, I just wasn't seeing it. I wasn't seeing it in an academic text. And so I knew I wanted to talk about that in some way, shape or form in my master's thesis which is exactly what I did during my time at Cal State Northridge. I ended up writing an autoethnography, so I went inward. I didn't interview anyone. <laughs> I did that for my PhD, for my dissertation too. I, I think it's fantastic. I just support, I'm just in love with everything you're saying. Please keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I, at that time, so there was overlap here, right? It was me sorting through these feelings of uh, selfless, selfless approach to writing academically, but also feeling self-conscious, working through, you know, 25 years of feeling um, like I was inadequate because I was fat, that I would never have a partner because I was fat, that I wasn't pretty because I was fat, all these different things. Um, and kind of sorting through the fact that I learned a lot of these things at home. 
which yes. for me was such a troubling experience to feel like, oh mm. man, how do I talk about this without feeling like I'm betraying my abuelitos as it is. Oh. I, was, <laughs> I was not raised with my mom and my dad. There was no nuclear family. My grandparents took me in, my tia took me in from the time I was a baby. But it was from them that I learned to be ashamed of my body, not just in terms of talking about sex or reproduction, but about my panza, about my arms, about feeling like my fatness was never gonna get me anywhere in life. And I had to somehow compensate for that all the time. Um, so I ended cool. up writing about that. At the same time, my grandpa passed away. So he passed away halfway through my program. So I think those feelings of grief and sorting through those emotions of guilt and shame and reworking those belief systems they came together in my thesis mm -hmm. and i talk about that very much in my thesis mm -hmm. i had these little vignettes of different memories of the past from feeling shamed by a stranger at uh i think it was like a little food court at a store do you all remember fedco the store, the store fedco there was no. a store named fedco <laughs> um Random. It's like Kmart. Like <laughs> yeah, it was like Kmart. <laughs> they had like a little food court in there and a stranger shamed me for what I was eating, but I was like four years mm. old, right? So I didn't really make the choices to what I was eating. Mm. And I remembered that. And I remember I wrote a story about my uh, grandpa making fun of me because I used to do ballet and I was a fat little ballerina. And so, mm. you know, he would poke mm. fun at the fact that I was a fat ballerina. So it's just mm. all these different memories that I had just squashed throughout the years that just they came out they came out they came out wow yeah and so um that's it's how so, I came into this work just so powerful they were able to use your academic space to to process this and to mm -hmm. that's so powerful I know there's opportunities like that but I know you really have to take them and I and you also have to step into deep vulnerability and also like that transparency that's turning your trauma to art that's so powerful. And I just applaud you for yeah. being able to do that within the academic world, which I'm, I don't know if you got pushback or. Yeah, that's what I want. I'm curious to see what, <laughs> what, yeah, what reactions. I mean, because I think across the board in academia, anytime you want to do like auto ethnography kind of stuff, auto ethnographic, um, which some of I did some of that in in my dissertation as well. I but I did get pushback because it's you know it's like research and what is research and what counts and um, but I think yeah. Anyway, I want to hear what <laughs> was their reaction. Thank you for that that compliments of that. I um I actually did not get pushback because I had a stellar thesis committee. Um, mm. So Cal State Northridge always prides itself on being like the biggest Chicano studies department. Mm -hmm. And I agree it is. There's definitely, I don't know if this is true now, this was 10 years ago, so I, this could be completely different. There was a, a difference in, I would, I want to say younger, more recently hired faculty and older faculty. <laughs> I think that is a consistent story in many Chicano, in Chicano many. studies programs. I will say absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so my, thesis committee was made up of these younger, of more course. recently hired <laughs> faculty members. Um, and they supported my vision. They supported, they supported not just me academically, but I think, you know, when my grandpa passed away, they were the ones that told me, make sure to take care of your spirit, take time off. We'll give you incomplete, come back when you're ready. And mm. I think now looking back on that and my experience right now in my PhD program, I am so thankful that these faculty members were very feminist oriented. They understand, they understood, they still understand, but they understood what I needed in that moment to continue. And, and mm -hmm. God, that, I wish so many times that academics, that some academics would realize that a lot of our success in this world, it, it comes down to other factors that have nothing to do with our intellectual capabilities, mm -hmm. right? And so. <laughs> I mean, how could they not, how could they not that. know that, you know? it's. Right. Like that's such I a, mean, of course, of course it does. But we've encountered that a lot. I'm sure you have too, like with um, the, the Rona, like the virus and, and certain oh, faculty yeah. not really understanding or seeing it from a family perspective or mm -hmm. um, like, like this talking, yeah. wanting people, students to be like walking heads somehow, you know, that's so, that's so white, that's so male, that's so yeah. old, you know. Um, and I think there's, you know, it's interesting that you talk about that 
that generational gap maybe within Chicano Chicana studies programs. And I think there's a lot of times that comes from how hard an older generation had to fight to make that space, to be in that space um, and all the hoops that they had to jump through to get there. And instead of turning around and saying, we jumped through those hoops so that you wouldn't have to, they're like, we jumped through those hoops, you need to too. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and you have to experience the torture that we experienced in order to call yourself on our level, right? To say mm-hmm. that you're on our level. And mm-hmm. um, I, I told, and, and I came from, when I was in the Chicano Chicana Studies program at Cal State LA and then going into like a, a UC, you know, PhD program, um, I saw the difference of like, how grounded Cal State LA was in the community versus otherwise. <laughs> um, and, and I started to realize, you know, that, I don't know, it was just, it's, it's, it is a very interesting dynamic. Um, so maybe along those lines, how, how is it, go- I mean, you don't have to put your, your PhD program on blast or anything, but <laughs> how, how is, is, are you doing that same research now in your PhD program or, or how's it going? Yeah, so I started my PhD program three years ago. There was a break in between MA and PhD and I just felt like that work was not complete. Um, I felt like I wanted to talk to other women and the more that I shared my thesis and my, actually my thesis members, they sometimes assign chapters of my work to their students. And you know, when I would zoom into these conversations with them, they'd be like, if you ever want somebody to interview for your future projects or whatever, count mm-hmm. me in. And the, what I kept getting was the sense of, there are other stories out there and people wanting to share them and mm-hmm. that work needs to be done. So I do, I, that's exactly what I'm doing is I want to interview more folks. Mm-hmm. I'm actually integrating a lot more, like I had no social media 10 years ago <laughs> as a part <laughs> of my thesis, but I find that a lot of fat positivity, body positivity that integrates that women of color, black women perspective, queer perspective, it's on social media. It's, and so I've been doing a lot more analysis of like Instagram posts, and comments Mm. and captions and trying to assess how do we make meaning out of these things how does reading a post you know maybe shape our perspectives about ourselves and so it's been it's been delving into like calm a lot of my work and I I like it I was gonna say that but I like it yeah I'm gonna say that I was gonna say that's like up my alley when I was doing like media study stuff and and talk about like how media shapes our identity formation or guides our identity formation and stuff um so tell us what do you see on instagram what do you what's your analysis <laughs> yes and my follow other question is like do you see how much do you see this work being done inside of academia are you that mm. only bridge maker there or do you like I, yeah do you see it elsewhere like particularly you know coming from the latinx perspective latinx fat studies latinx critical media literacy and fat studies i'm interested from what I've seen, and I've seen it a lot at like conferences and stuff, it, it's happening. It's a lot of it's coming out of performance studies, which uh, I find super, super fascinating. I think mm-hmm. it's beautiful that it's in performance studies. I think it is out there. Um, it's just a matter in your approach. So for example, I've seen a lot of really good work that's coming out of like um, public health work. There's mm-hmm. still some medi- like medical models being applied there. But... Uh, this medical model only approach to studying health issues that impacts uh, mm-hmm. Latinx communities, Chicanx communities. Um, it's out there. Yeah. I think it's just hard to grab a hold of. Right. Like I think about NWSA. Right. And I, or Malks or, you know, um, Knox, like the conferences mm-hmm. we've, we've gone to have been going to, and I, and I don't know if I see that conversation happening. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, it's just, it's so hard. It's few and far between. I think when you see it, at, especially like NWSA, I didn't even go this last year. I went two years, <laughs> I went two years ago, but, um, I think I was part of a round table and, and one panel and that was pretty much it from what I saw. Wow. Yeah. But on social media, uh, the conversation for me shifts much more to how are 
that persons of color talking about their fatness in ways that a lot of fat stu- like fat studies is an actual area of study. They have a journal. Mm. And I, I, I find it very Western. It's a lot like, for example, I believe there's a fat studies conference coming up next month and it's in New Zealand. Yeah, I heard I saw a post about it somewhere. I think Sonia Renee Taylor might be presenting yeah. at it or something. Something she's like in, that. She's in New Zealand, right? So that would Yeah, I think sense. she's yeah, I think she's out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of the stuff I've been reading in the journal, it's it's shifted from ten years ago. I think it started in two thousand and twelve, but it's shifted to now, you know, being more conscious about different intersections of fat experiences. But you know, for example, I see on social media a lot more bodies, a lot more flesh. And it's, you know, I've, I've actually been seeing recently a lot of pushback against Instagram for flagging mm-hmm. accounts, mm-hmm. for showing more flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Instagram is the, the algorithms are very complex to even understand. But we do see a lot of censorship of fat bodies happening on Instagram specifically. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I think that brought um that reminded me of i think towards the beginning of the quarantine <clears throat> um lizzo was there was something about uh, p diddy was having some like online thing and lizzo was like twerking and they were like no 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 this is a family show and then like later on there was somebody some other woman who's thin and was doing the same thing and that it was allowed to kind of go on and so a lot of people were calling out the ways in which she gets policed for her body in a way that thin mm-hmm. bodies don't right as over sexual or hypersexual or um yeah wow that's fascinating sexuality yeah yeah, yeah. for so for me i i just wrote a paper about jessica salgado's instagram mm-hmm. she's a la fly salvi poet Mm-hmm. Um, she talks a lot about her sexuality as a fat woman, and I truly appreciate that uh, for putting sexuality out there at the forefront in ways that are challenging the idea of the asexual fat woman. Mm. Or uh, the there's a there's a whole area of study in fat studies that talks about how fat women are fetishized, and she's really very much pushing back against that. My sexuality is mine and I can fuck who I want and I can wear the lingerie I want and take pictures in them. And that's okay. I don't want to feel shamed anymore for that. So yeah, I really like her account. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think, I think there's a few things happening in my, in my, or in my perception or in my observation, I guess, like, I always say I, we, some of us, whether in academia or whether in this like latinx instagram world right it's a pretty small bubble i'd say right like everybody kind of follows the same people we all follow nalgona positivity pride right like we're all following all these people and so um and i think a lot of us are also very clear about who we're not following right or what we're not Mm -hmm. following so that our feed doesn't get infiltrated with these you know negative messaging and whatnot um, but what's interesting, so I think there's that happening, right? And you're like, yeah, there's all this great stuff. Um, but then I also question how is that, like, how far is that reach? Because then when I step into my classrooms and I talk about all these things, this is like the first time that they've ever heard it. I know. Right? And so I'm wondering, like, I don't know if you have any sort of thing to say about like, where is that, that gap or what, what, what you think about how young people are still grappling with this or it's not even maybe necessarily on their radar is that called like is it called something like micromedia i'm like trying to think about like the difference between the like instagram media versus like vida or shows that are so popular yeah, I mean, it's, versus it's mass media versus like i don't know grassroots media right uh, mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean i I'm learning the terms as I go because media is just definitely not something that I've ever <laughs> studied officially. Um, but I've had that, those encounters too with my students. Um, when I taught face-to-face, I would, you know, bring up the actual Instagram account and so many of my students would be like, I've never even like seen this or heard of this. I, I've, yeah. I don't know. And I'm wondering if it's just, we're not talking about body positivity at an age where if students mm. do already have access to social media, that they even know to look for that. Like, is it something that exists? in their repertoire i don't necessarily know um yeah 
I agree. It, it's a, it's the question for me. How do we talk about these things to, you know, this younger generation and even older generations, but how do we talk to them about this and share yeah. this information? And also, you know, you, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, the people we follow is very similar in this bubble. I think there's also something happening where we start policing, well, who's like more woke in the body positivity uh, movement. Right. What is it? Cancel culture, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so hmm. all of a sudden, if you're following a certain Instagrammer, Mm-hmm. then that means that you must align your politic with them. And if they're problematic, then you're problematic. So, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that. Is... <laughs> That's for me when I talk about, like, call-in culture versus call-out culture, you know, and stuff, yeah. too. But um, there's definitely something to be said about that. I was talking with um, um, another friend of ours, Cindy Lukin, um, yesterday. And we were, we were doing sort of a textual analysis of Vida, and she's a sex educator so she was talking about it from that perspective and i was talking about it from like a critical media literacy perspective um and it's it's sort of the same thing she was i was saying like you can watch and love a show and still critique it right and still say hey these are where the holes are without saying i hate it i don't ever want to it's trash right like we can love it and critique it at the same time (laughs) and i've always said that because when the the pushback that I get when I talk about like trying to help helps, um, my dissertation was about giving young people a language to critique media mm-hmm. and you know their response was like well I don't you know I don't listen to those negative messages I'm like it does, you don't have to listen to them you're getting them right, yeah. right. right. <laughs> um right. and they're and in we, the air right I love that metaphor it's in the air and we need to be able to like be able to see that and and, and deal with that and so then they're like their thing is to go into defensive mode, right? Like, well, just because I, wa- <clears throat> I watch that show or like that show doesn't mean that I'm racist or doesn't mean that I'm, you know, sexist. Or, I'm like, I'm no one said you were. <laughs> this is just about sort of uh, interrogating, you know, what kinds of things are happening. Um, and I think that's kind of the same thing, right? Where we're like, right. okay, we can, we can critique each other um, while also um, loving each other through it. Now, I think it's so interesting that you point that out because it's like, are we spending too much time doing that versus like doing the outreach we need to be doing to, um, to the generations that, that need to hear this? Because So the other part of, of Christine and I's conversation that we've been obviously coming back to a lot is, is um, so on one hand, like body positive stuff is kind of within this circle but out in the mass media is a lot of like toxic diet culture stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they're getting that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. So yeah, I don't know if you want to talk to anything about about sort of like the toxic diet culture and, um, you know, just the messaging that we get about bodies. Yeah, it, it's there. It's all around us. <laughs> Even at freaking when I would go to like Ross and Dee Dee's with my Thea, like there's the diet drinks right there on sale if you want to buy the special teas to lose weight. And I'm like, this is Ross. Like, I didn't come here for this. <laughs> You're like, um, I'm just trying to get to bargain <laughs> clothes, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Do I get my Tonys at? <laughs> Anyways, yeah. I think a lot of it too is it's like I'm thinking about how when you are teaching, at least within this realm of being an educator, you're taught that, you know, certain, certain things are scholarly and certain things are not scholarly. So to assign students to look at Instagram posts, not considered scholarly in a history classroom, but I'm thinking, well, how can I introduce you to different types of information? Uh How can we learn to identify toxic diet culture if we're not talking about Instagram, if we're not talking about pop culture shows on Netflix. Right. So I think from that angle, I can see how we need to broaden what we're teaching, mm-hmm. what assignments we have, what we're assigning. And I do believe that a lot of us are already doing that. I, I see a lot of us that are not because it's not considered academic or scholarly. In terms of diet, toxic diet culture, it, it's there. It's, it's, something that I've inherited, that I've learned to look out for, 
even now in my 30s, I still have people that are telling me like, well, you need to get on a diet if you want to like lose weight and ever have a family. Like you need to get on a diet. You can't have kids. You can't get married. And it's just, how do I navigate that as a 30 something year old? What tools do I have to filter these messages? Mm-hmm. It's t- it's it's rough because then it starts, you know, it's, it's very cyclical. Then I start thinking, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I do need to lose weight. Maybe, you know, by any means necessary, let me go watch, you know, something about weight loss or let me go explore this and that option. Let me get on this diet. And I think the most toxic part of thinking that way isn't really thinking through the intersections. Like I'm a huge intersections. Let's really think about what does diet culture look like for working class folks, for women, for men, for queer bodies. What does it mean to not have access to really good quality foods to not be able to, I have a food for less down the street. That's what I have in my neighborhood. Food for less, much respect. Thank you for feeding my family. But I am very well aware that the food at food for less is not the quality food from Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or, you know, freshly grown products. So I think for me, it's just thinking about, you know, what is my community look like? Is it safe for people to work out? Do people have access to gyms? Do, I mean, right now it's, it's just turned into like a, a huge no. mishmash of what people have access to. If anything, it's been very revealing of what people don't have access to. Yes. Um, I just want to say, I want to recognize like this inward story and the ones, you know, around shaming that we can tell ourselves or our family can tell us or we can tell in our community, right? They keep us really bound in there. And I love, like, when you started to talk about intersections and expanding the conversation and question, you could really feel like it's free, you know? I think it, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's not like a mental game, but it's like stepping out of sight of a small world into a much bigger picture. And I just thought you did that so well in that moment to ask the questions that need to be asked. So it's not about just our individual stories with our individual families or even, like, these popular Instagrams that we're all supposed to follow, right? And be on the same, like, that's the powers that be want us to keep, like, kind of fighting each other um, and waste our, or use our energy on that and keep competing or shaming each other so that they just keep on, you know, perpetuating toxic cultures around diet. Yeah, that's, I mean, intersection is definitely, yeah, so much you said there, right? Like this whole situation is revealing so much. And I think the, for, for me at least, what it's revealed is how little people are aware of intersectionality, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I've had my whole journey, this whole, this whole quarantine with some people, but um, you're like, and I think a lot, even the word intersectionality, right? We know it comes from Kimberly Crenshaw, um, but even before Kimberly Crenshaw, right, the seeds of intersectionality were born out of the 60s, 70s, you know, Angela Davis and um, Ross and Combat Audre Lorde <laughs> and Gloria Saldua and Chiri Moraga, right? Like all of these, you know, mm-hmm. s- scholars um, and, and that led to, to Kimberly Crenshaw's work. Um, and so it's interesting. I always feel like my feminism has always been intersectional because of I came to feminist, at least at the scholarly level, from women of color, not from white feminism. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. but, I, but I think yep. you're right to point out the intersections of this. And it's, it's super important to, to, to talk about um, diet culture in uh, conjunction with things like access, right? It's easy because I think what happens is there's this conversation of like, well, if you're overweight or if you're fat, it's your fault. You are doing mm-hmm. something wrong. And if you're doing something wrong, that means you are not. It always ends up to somehow you're a bad person, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like this yep. moral judgment, right? It quickly goes yep. into this like you see yourself. moral hierarchy um, mm-hmm. without, again, having those questions of like, what does it mean to not have access to, like you said, quality food, um, which food itself goes into a whole cycle. I was just having a conversation with somebody, you know, talking about, um, she's like, well, I'm trying to keep my kids healthy by, by feeding them like, you know, all organic, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, (laughs) do you realize that Latinx people are the ones picking all that fucking organic fruit and they can't even mm-hmm. afford to eat it and buy it. What does that say about our system? It's great that you're keeping your kids healthy, but if you're not also advocating for 
these other things, then how healthy are we or how much, you know, then it just becomes a selfish act. Right. And not like, and it's not to say that you can't eat organic. It's to say you have to do both of those things simultaneously, eat organic and advocate for, but I think when it comes to this, this topic, it is about like, you know, like you said, access to gyms, safety. What do you, I want to hear you talk about like, what do you mean by, do you feel safe to be at a gym? Like, what does that mean to you? What came to mind when I thought of that was the neighborhood I live in, I, I always felt safe here, but I will say that crime has gone up in recent years. Mm-hmm. There are not, all the roads in my neighborhood are not paved with sidewalks. People speed, especially cops speed by, like there's a sheriff patrol station a few blocks away. So they're always speeding by getting to wherever they're going. And so just even being able to take a walk in my neighborhood, if I want to, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard a lot of people in this pandemic have been taking more walks. And I've seen it in other people's neighborhoods, but not necessarily mine. Mm. It's because, it, you know, where do you walk if all you have is the road? There's no sidewalk. Um, you know, if there's, if there's cars constantly flying by, zooming by, you know, where do you, where is there to walk? Yeah. In terms of safety at like gyms and stuff like that, who has access to a gym that they can afford? And now that gyms are closed, you know, are people working out as much or not? I think it's also just the education that goes into working out beyond shaming. So what is the investment from a healthy perspective versus, you know, like for example, Michelle Obama's let's move campaign, which was pretty much shaming little kids for their fat bodies. Um, you know, what? what it, <laughs> Say that again. Say that again. <laughs> you know, oh, like, wow. like what's the purpose of a PE program? A lot of kids don't like PE programs, but are we really teaching about, health and movements and going beyond just this is like a weight control issue to you know this is about your muscles and your muscle memory and long-term investment in your health and mental I health as well i still remember those miles from elementary school i was <laughs> yeah, like the i was the chubby brown girl who was always at the very end the very end i was yeah. i was i was you were the first you were totally the first I hate, I hated it. I, and I still think about that when I'm running, I just think they've taken that from me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was, I was the, the athletic kid that was, yes, in high school, I was the front, I was the first one in from the run of PE, but I was, I but I, I ran like a 20 minute mile. But I, but it was also like, um, I mean, we all have our, our body issues, but as I got older and I began to gain weight, I, my relationship with working out completely shifted right where Mm -hmm. I working out when I was younger like I didn't really think it was just it was just a way of life and then as I got older and and all of a sudden I didn't look like an athlete right or I didn't look the same way I did I was like I I became embarrassed right to like go out and and work out with other people that may look you know like I used to right everybody's got their um, their journey, but like, I, but I, but it's all, and it all stems from shame, right? Like yeah, recognizing yeah. that, um, you know, I, I, I talk a lot in my classes too about like fitness culture, right? And, um, and then I think we talked in our last episode, Christina, about how like both of those things, like diet, fitness culture, kind of tend to like co-opt this like body positive language, right? Oh, it's not a diet; it's a lifestyle, right? Or it's not, you know, um, but. But um, but then but then weight is still the measure, <laughs> right? Weight right. is still the measure of success, right? Or of um, um, like whether or not you're doing well or whatever it is, right? Even when we were like children, right? Even when we were like in elementary school, and even now, that's what you're calling now. And I think that's so. so yeah, no, I mean you called up Michelle Obama, okay? I know. <laughs> Um, but I was thinking about this the other when I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking right because it it was all around the idea of child childhood obesity right and and um and this perception of kids has been and and I say this in this way like it just makes me sad right to think like our kids could be judged for their bodies at an age when I mean, there's so many changes, right? That they're still going yep. to be going through up, down, all around. And, and we're automatically putting this on them. Um, 
and I think that's what upset me the most when I was, you know, reading about this and even thinking about it now is if you isolate children as the, the people that are in charge of their weight, then what does that mean for the quality of school lunches? What does that mean for having access to breakfast or snacks after school? Oh, what does that mean for holding grocery stores accountable to accessible foods, to good foods, for wages that might allow a parent to make other choices than you know, what they can afford to feed a family of four or five. So it's like what, victim what, shaming, basically. It's right, right, it's like right. victim blaming. Right. Victim, victim blaming. blaming. And oh. really, I think cre isolating fat on a body and making that as if like the embodied criminal on your body, like you should be ashamed of this, this thing that you carry around. These, these extra pounds are all of a sudden the enemy. So your own body becomes your own enemy. And, and if you start oh. messaging from a young age, how do you yeah. want to do that? I don't know. <laughs> I was meditating this, my med our meditation this morning. Where? I've been doing these five minute meditations. The meditation was, the mantra was, um, my body is my ally. And I was just like, yes. Like, you know, uh, what, what I keep hearing coming up mm. is, is capitalism, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I've always been so um, confused or bewildered, right? So on one hand, we're being sold diet culture, we're being sold fitness culture, right? Like, just, just don't eat or just make sure you're eating healthy foods. And then on the other hand, you have ads for Carl's Jr. and McDonald's and right all these like fast food restaurants and so you're like wait am I not supposed to eat or am I supposed to eat this big ass hamburger right like <laughs> and, and then they're pumping the smell out too so it's like <laughs> you can't even go like on a and, drive and, and smell then, like and fresh then, good stuff and then like you said because the fast food is actually more accessible right to communities of color then that does become you know um then their, their choices are kind of within that, you know, realm. So it's like, on one hand, we're being told to eat this food, right? This whatever lower quality food um, by, by advertisers, but then it's your fault if you eat too much. Right. Right. Or it's your, right. And so it's like capitalism is coming at you from all ends too, because well, if you eat too much, then just go get on this like diet and pay for it. And, right. you know, <laughs> so they're winning all the way around, right? Capitalism yes. ends up winning all the way around. Mm -hmm. And there's a show, there's multiple shows like My 600 Pound Life on oh. like TLC and these weight loss shows that really emphasize how there's always trauma involved in fat bodies through mm. you know, childhood into adulthood, that it comes back down to the eating. And if you watch these shows, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that you can notice, like the class of the people that are, uh, you know, involved in, in these shows for weight loss. I think in thinking about safety, you know, how safe is it to endure these surgeries and mm -hmm. what's the follow-up and the, the health, the access to healthcare for these folks that have undergone weight loss surgery? Um, you know, so when I'm thinking about like, how does the media play into this whole system and how do we consume that? Even just by tuning in, like just by tuning in and watching these things. Yeah, I, I, um, my husband and I used to watch Biggest Loser back in the day, <laughs> way back, back. The day, yeah. and they just redid it, and I was like, I refuse, I refuse, I refuse, I refuse to watch it because, I mean, and now that they've they've had so much time since the last, you know, iteration of it, and they've done all these studies on these contestants and how their metabolisms have essentially just been shot to hell because they lost weight so quickly and then they've gained it back or even more. And it, it's, um, it's permanent damage that has been done to their bodies because of mm -hmm. um, everything that they, they endured. And, um, and yet, and I'm like, and, and so we have all the information and yet we're still kind of, uh, we're still doing that. Um, something and it's that, again, like which bodies are being, you know, doing, are, having that done to them we can think of like the sport sports too you know it's like what bodies are um Oof. sacrificable i guess and like that you know um yeah, yeah. It, when you when you talk about like health and um i i, I kind of talk with that about my students about like this person the bmi we talk about the bmi and the fuckedness of the, of the BMI, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, and how there's the perception of health is like if you're thin, you're automatically seen as a healthy person, whether or not you have any underlying health issues, which a lot of thin people do, right? Mm -hmm. Which a lot, I mean, 
weight has, is no indicator of your health. Um, and yet if you're in a fat body, you're seen as automatically unhealthy again, without even knowing your health history or anything like that. And, um, something that I I've heard and, and that I think helps me to kind of, um, re look at things is that like, when we look at, like you said, the trauma of these, of these people on these shows, right? It's not to say that they haven't endured trauma, but it's that weight gain is a symptom of the trauma, not the cause of the trauma, right? Oh. <laughs> um, and, and, that, and, and again, we get so caught up in like, oh, well, if you're fat, it's your fault. You did this to yourself. It's traumatizing because of that, right? Versus saying, I remember when I used to watch Biggest Loser, I was like, you know, they had a you know, they had their trainer and they had a chef and they had a doctor, a, like a medical doctor. But I was like, do they have a psychologist? Are they in therapy? Like, are they talking about that kind of stuff? You know, um, it just felt like there was such lacking of, of that part. But, you know, it's all problematic now. But um, but yeah, healthcare I think, is 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 another part of this right access. I mean, definitely we're hearing. I mean, when people are talking about wanting to reopen, I'm like, Okay, if you're gonna reopen, are you gonna guarantee that everybody has healthcare when they get sick? Because I mean, that's the only way I'm gonna. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, and yeah. Oh. <laughs> um. So I think I think we can we can wrap up here. Um, <sighs> final thoughts. Or, There's a I lot mean, to unpack, right? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack and, you know, I, I just think about how, you know, right now I'm kind of, I've been at a standstill with my own work academically. Mm -hmm. um, I think this, th these last couple of months, there has been a lot of like fat phobic stuff circulating. Mm -hmm. Oh, how much weight I'm going to gain during this pandemic or yes. I haven't worked out in forever. And it, that's been triggering in some ways. Yeah. And I'm having to remind myself, you know, we're, we're like, like let, let me talk gently to myself. It's okay to gain mm -hmm. some weight. Still go take a walk if you can. Um, eat mm -hmm. foods to nourish yourself, to make yourself feel good about yourself. Um, you know, and I'm not advocating, you know, everybody just go gain weight because I say so, go lose <laughs> weight because I say so. It's more so like, let's really question who determines what is thin and healthy who determines that being fat is all of a sudden being something that's bad, which is funny as a historian, I'm like a super nerd. A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, being a fat was not an indicator of that at all. It was quite the opposite. It meant wealth, it meant status, it meant whiteness. To a certain extent, when you have these immigrants coming into the United States, they were shorter, stockier. So, you know, there a lot of thinness wanted to separate itself from fatter brown bodies and these are the people that have the power right that have the power to say like thinness is what you want to aspire to we have a family story we have a family story like my one of my great-great-grandparents was or just they were larger and they were wealthier so they were they could they could be that way you know and but it doesn't trickle down it doesn't like why would that change and i love so, that thinness is a, a colonial, colonial thought like just so it comes down to white supremacy again. <laughs> this investment, this investment in, in whiteness, absolutely. And, and I, I would say this is a big industry now. I mean, what, I think it's a three, it's a three trillion, one trillion dollar industry, the weight loss industry. It, We're it's, talking it's about massive. how Weight Watchers is targeting kids, you know? And I, I, I really, I'm going to walk away with, and I'll hold into my heart and like try to heal my inner child, like holding responsible black and brown, you know, kid bodies, like holding them responsible. Like that's, can't do that. That's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think just thinking about these things when we are tempted to shame ourselves, to denigrate ourselves, this, like you started off the show, these are our bodies. This is what we have. Let's work with that. Let's honor that for exactly what they are, which is our, our, our pillars of hope and love and, and the vessels that we move in, you know, and I'm very much like Gloria Antaldua, Moraga, Theory of the Flesh, like that is my grounding. Right? <laughs> yeah. When you jumped yes, into Kualakwe yes, at the beginning, yes, it was yes. like, yes. Yep. 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 You know, let's, I mean, let's honor that. Yeah. Gloria's our, our godmother for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. I mean, it, it just, 
and that's I think that's what I always try to when when I talk about this is to really like you said look at the intersections right that and and like you said also um it's not to say like oh we should just gain a bunch of weight or we should lose a bunch of weight it's to sort of question why do we feel the need to do either of those things in the first place right um and to also recognize that there's a lot of things out of our control right because white supremacy patriarchy fat phobia, all of those things want to tell us it's our fault and that we're bad if we don't live up to these certain um, standards or whatever. And it's, um, it's to like, that has been my journey, right? I have to, I'm in a place where I'm trying to, like, I'm not trying to be in either side of like, I'm just going to say fuck exercise and, <laughs> and fuck eating healthy. Like, I'm just going to, you know, um, but I'm, I'm trying to come to a place where I, I shift my perspective about it, right? I'm eating healthy so that I feel good, not because, not because I need to lose weight um, or not because what, and I, I want to exercise to find joy in it, not be like, oh, go and exercise. Right. Like yeah, I want to come to a place where eating is fun and working out is fun. And it's about making, and it's about feeling good and not just mm -hmm. about like, what do I look like to the world? But that's, it's a journey. That's not an easy place to get to. Um, but and I there's think- There's no destiny. There's no final destination. This is like a lifelong, up and down cyclical type of journey it's going to happen at every phase of our lives we're so task oriented renee and we just felt like check we did it okay done that's the academic in no. us right we're like uh, yep. let's, let's make a to-do list of life uh, um, and i mean a relationship with ourselves the relationship with yeah. our bodies you know i love and something that um, I know Christine and I, because we have young kids, you know, and that's, and I think at least for me, part of the reason why now more than ever, I'm like diving headfirst into so much of all of these different topics is because I need to be able to create a model for my kids. I don't want them to experience that body shame and that um, having to unlearn all this shit 20 years later, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, like. I'm gonna they will invest in therapy, <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's like, how, how can we create something, um, even if it's just an inch better, you know, than, than we yeah. had, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, any, any final thoughts, any final comments? Any, I just want to say thank you for opening up this space and for letting me really talk about this. It's, it's, because of my relationship with my program and just the distance that happened this year, I really haven't given it much thought. Um, mm. It was for me, it was about getting through the hurdles established by the institution, right? So these are your exams and these are the classes you need to take. And so finally being able to like jump back into this and talking about this, I really appreciate the space in doing so. Yeah. It's such an honor to have you here. And honestly, um, the work you're doing is so powerful. I really hope. I know I can see you continuing and finishing yeah. and going on to, you know, teach and really just transform lives um, yeah. as you're already I mean, doing. And in, in academia, I mean, Christine and I have been through it. It's, it's, um, it's a freaking, I don't even know. <laughs> it's, it's, yep. you know, I was, I just posted that I'm three years out of, you know, God, I remember three years ago writing my dissertation and then, it, yeah, I just experienced so much like PTSD after that because I was like, what the fuck was that? Like it's, and then I had a very positive for the most part, but there's still just so much hoops to jump through and all this shit and, and there's still the imposter syndrome every freaking mm -hmm. second, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, do I belong here? Am I good? Like, and it's a lot of like mental games, right? That yep. you, that you are playing with yourself. Um, and so it, it did take me a while after to kind of come to a place where I can freely think again and, um, and want to do other stuff. But anyway, yeah. Thank you for being here. I mean, thank this you. is, yeah. I you mean, will make it through. <laughs> yeah. This is this small task and it doesn't have to be perfect. Just, you know, finish perfection out the window. Yeah, perfection yeah. out the freaking. It sounds like you have a great committee or, or, or that was for your masters, huh? For your PhD. I hope you have a good committee. <laughs>
Me too. <laughs> it's never too late to it's never too late to kick people off your committee. Let me just say that. It's never it's never too late to change things. Um, if you ever give birth, it's never too late to switch doctors to <laughs> midwives. We always we always <laughs> use that as an analogy, right? It's never too late to kick someone off your team. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I want to tell you that um, when we kind of first start talking about this, you were always on the on the back of my mind to talk to because, like I said, I remember in that conference, I was like, she's talking about fat studies, like, you know, it was it was revolutionary for the time, you know, something that at least within an academic space, and obviously it still is, but um, so we need we need we need that work to be done, you know, um, we need those you know yeah so thank you for being here thank you for the thank work you. that you do <sighs> and yeah stay healthy and safe during this time and and we'll keep in touch like we're hoping to bring in borderlands for our august book club and you should join if you want to that would be great <laughs> to have you back to. oh yes i would, I would yeah. love to thank you yes i would love to yeah awesome Okay, All right. well, thank you. Great. Bye, Monica. Thank you. Bye. 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 So good. She's great. That was great. Thank yeah. you. Awesome. Okay, so. I think that was great, too. I don't know if you need to edit that. I know I saw you playing with the, the mics. I don't know. I had the fan on, and I was like, oh, shoot. My oh. fan is on, too, but um, hold on. I'm just